Hi, my name is Paul Nerland, and I want to welcome you to the Exhorter Podcast, a place to stir up love and good works through bite-sized biblical discussion. I'm joined here today with uh, John Bradford and Kyle Goodwin. John and Kyle, great to be with you again. And uh, I want to talk about something that's uh, one of my favorite subjects and something that's been on my mind as I teach the high school class, which I get to share that privilege with Kyle. I do it Sundays, and he does it on Wednesdays. And I would just say, Kyle, they keep us on our toes, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Lots of questions. Good questions. They ask tons of questions. And one of the things we've been talking about is how to defend your faith. And uh, some of you know that's one of my favorite topics. But recently, it's been simply, how do we know that God exists? And and when I'm talking to somebody, uh, when they're talking to somebody at school or we're talking to somebody at work, um, how do you respond to that? So I wanted to ask a question, which I asked the high school class to think about. And John and Kyle, I want you to close your eyes for this, okay? You ready? Ready. I want you to imagine for a moment that there is no God. And if you're listening to this podcast, unless you're driving, you don't close your eyes then, but close your eyes for just a moment and think about if God doesn't exist, how does that change your life? And if you're a believer, it could be significant. If you're not a believer, then perhaps not. What would change in your life if there was no God? And so I'm going to open it up. You could open your eyes if you'd like, John and Kyle, to really open it up. If there was no God, what would be different in your life? There would just be really no point in doing anything. There wouldn't be any right. You know, There wouldn't be anything right or wrong necessarily, and so it would just be kind of up to everyone and everyone's judgment and... Yeah, I'd find it pretty aimless. This is a very generic answer, but I would be much more selfish. And I'm not a I'm not a self entirely selfless person now. It's something I need to work on in my life, but I would be completely unhindered selfish. I would do a lot more things for me. Um I would I I would just spend money on myself. I would just do a lot more things for me. Uh, and I think I'd be much less satisfied in life, but I, I think that's that's probably the main thing, how my life might change if I really was convinced there was no God, is I would lose the motivation for why I do things for other people. So you both captured it, and the high school class came up with the same thing, but we kind of narrowed it down to, to three things, and you you both just talked about it. So one of them is, really, if there's no God, there's really no no meaning, no no significance. Why am I here? At the end of the day, I'm just I'm warm food. At the end of the day, really, that that's there's no meaning beyond just what I'm doing here. Um, John, you spoke about you didn't use this word, but morality. What's right? What's wrong? Right? Without God, there's really no standard. So if somebody says something's right, but somebody else says something's wrong, who's to judge? So really, there's no value of what's right, what's wrong, because there's no God. And the last thing you both kind of spoke to is is purpose, a reason for being here. At the end of the day, there's really no purpose in life. Now, there may be illusions for purpose in life. I'm not saying that if you don't believe in God, you can't have a meaning or a purpose in life. But I would say that those purposes are ultimately human illusions. You may believe in a cause, you may believe in something, but ultimately... There's really no purpose in life. 
And I think that's why people are looking for a cause, whether it's, um, you know, some causes are certainly worthy causes, uh, whether it's things like saving the world or fighting climate change, you might think of that as a completely worthy cause, but people have made that the mission. And I, I think that when people look for something other than God for meaning, they might be satisfied for moments, but it never truly satisfies that longing in our soul for purpose. I think it might be like uh, someone I know who has this fear of death, huge fear of death, to the point where they are really hoping that we can figure out how to freeze our brains and extend life because they don't want to miss out on anything. They're hyper-focused kind of on the end of life and how to extend that life and hoping that science can figure that out in the next 50 to 60 years. I think I would be hyper kind of focused on either uh, there's no afterlife, so I'm now going to be like so cautious that, you know, I, I use this life to the best because I only have the one, you know, or I would be like, well, there's no meaning, there's no care. So if I didn't have a hope of a resurrected body, I might actually take care of this body a little I bit. Know, I, you could go either way, but at the end of the day, it's not informed by a reward. It's not informed by uh, this faith and this belief that there is something better than what we're dealing with here. Which fitness is another example of people pursuing meaning in life chasing one high after another that never leaves you completely satisfied. So when we look at these things at the end of the day, why did I even bring it up? Is when I was talking to the high school class, it was really how to use reason and logic to talk to people about God. And the purpose of talking about this is really absent God, life is meaningless, purposeless, valueless, and it's really absurd, frankly, without God. And when people see the alternatives, one compared to the other, they stand out. Well, that often is not enough. So what I wanted to do, just briefly, we've only got a few minutes, and while you're listening, we want to give you five reasons that we know God exists, and just chat about them briefly. This is something, if, if you're talking to an atheist, here's five things that you can talk about. So here's number one. Albert Einstein believe it or not, he was one of the smartest men that, that ever lived, supposedly. But would you believe that at one point, he and most scientists believed that the universe was eternal, that it had always been there, that there was no absolute beginning. In fact, when he was doing his formula for the theory of general relativity, he fudged the formula. And that's, that's even his own words later. And he did that because he found that what he was studying showed that there was an absolute, sudden, definitive beginning to the universe, and that did not match what he had studied. Years later, Edwin Hubble, he named the Hubble telescope after him years later, uh, discovered evidence, including what looking at what Einstein and really found that the, it, it points to a definitive, sudden beginning of the universe. Einstein later said it was the greatest blunder of his life when he looked back on this. And so point number one is the fact that science has now confirmed, and Einstein got it wrong, the beginning of the universe points to a beginner. There was a sudden definitive beginner. Scientists call it now the Big Bang. We would call it the creation of the universe. Yeah, and I'm, I rarely get into deep scientific conversations simply because I don't have, a, I don't, I'm not solidly grounded in science. 
I didn't study science in college. I don't have experience in uh, physics and uh, things, you know, astronomy or things like that. But uh, I, I can talk logic with people. And to suggest that there is a Big Bang, my question is, what caused the Big Bang? Not super scientific, but you have to concede at some point, everything that exists had to come into existence. Well, that's basic physics, right? Cause and effect. So there, well, there would have to be some sort of something okay. to cause. Okay. I don't know event. much about physics, but I do know thermodynamics, the, 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 the basic laws that govern this universe. Matter is neither created nor destroyed. But at some point, it had to be created in the first place. Uh, there's the law of increasing entropy. Things fall apart. Things slow down. An object in motion tends to slow down over time. Solar systems do that. Suns, they, they, they slow down and dissipate into nebulas. But at some point, everything had to get wound up in the first place. Everything had to be set in motion. So the entropy had to start somewhere. So all of it points to, at some point, the most basic laws of physics had to be turned upside down so that there's a beginning point. But there's always a beginning point. And that's, it's not incredibly scientific the way I explain it, but I find it very logically consistent that there has to be an origin. And the most logical explanation to me is a creator. It's interesting you say that, Kyle, because I shared the same thing with the high school class. I'm no scientist. However, um, when I was in high school, um, I remember when we were in biology, we studied evolution. And I don't know if this would be allowed today, but my teacher knew that there was disagreement about the origin of the universe and decided that he would allow a debate in the class. And so on one side was those who believed in creation. Uh, the other um, was evolution. When I say evolution, I mean that the origin of the universe was not, you know, God was not a part of it. Um, I, as I told the high school class, guess who was on the, the atheist side? All the smartest kids in the class. In fact, they... Um, self-described themselves as the nerds of the class. And we're proud of it. These were the ones who set the curve. I did not. <laughs> and I was leading the other side. So I was a little intimidated, uh, you know, being on there. But Kyle, to your point, the place that I got them to really stumble and bumble around was just getting to that very point. Tell me who started it. And they couldn't answer it. I mean, the most articulate atheist out there, Richard Dawkins, will stumble and bumble around because there's really not a solid answer to it. And that debate does not happen today because you're labeled a science denier if you disagree. So so what's interesting about this is we haven't even opened the Bible, but actually these are scientific facts that science agrees. The beginning of the universe was definitive. It was sudden, and it points to a beginner of the universe. So that's number one. Number two you can tell anybody about this, the fine-tuning of the universe. This, uh, whether atheists would call it a, a Big Bang or an explosion of the universe, we would call it creation, yet the fine-tuning of it to life on Earth being so perfect, the astronomical evidence for God, atheist physicists say the universe exploded out of nothingness. Agnostic astronomers say it supernatural forces were at work because they can't explain it. But at the end of the day, the universe was so precise in the way things played out that life on Earth as we know it is perfect. 
there's a list of at least 122 constants that have everything to do with where the earth is in the universe, where the sun is, where the stars are, that if if they were just slightly different, life on earth would not be possible. Yet people believe that somehow these things just happened. Now, both of you, you you've been on an airplane, right? Yeah. When you're on an airplane, do you stop and think about the design of the airplane? I think that you have a healthy curiosity how something could actually work like that. If you're if you're in an airplane, of course, my son takes great interest in this. Cole's my little aviator at home. Um, if you're on an airplane and you had any doubt about how it was designed when you were getting into it, you might think about how precise and how you know so much work that went into that airplane. We don't question that. But when it comes to the universe, which is so much more complex, we don't even really think about how the design of the universe and just how um, precise it is, yet people would suggest that somehow it just exploded into nothingness. Yeah, that they're talking about forces of chaos, where we're talking about an intelligent, purposeful designer. Chaos does not tend to create order. Explosions don't create buildings, they destroy them. We talk about mutations as as the process for evolution to happen. Well, mutations aren't beneficial. You see, peop- those are the things that are at, at county fairs and floating in jars of formaldehyde, you know, animals that had mutations. It, it has a, an arm, extra arm growing out of the side of their head. It's, mutations are not a beneficial thing. Chaos does not create order. So it points to an intelligent and purposeful designer to create the proper environment. Chaos doesn't accomplish this. It reminds me, Kyle, of uh, Psalm 19 and verse 1. It says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. The Bible continually tells us to look to the stars, to look to the universe as evidence for him. If you're listening to this podcast on the Clovis Church of Christ website, uh, there was a presentation by by Steve Berg called Science and the Bible, and some of these things are talked about. And he gets in not just to the fine-tuning of the universe, but the fine-tuning of the design of life and just how precise it is as evidence for a creator. Yeah, the Bible, it, it might come short of proof, but neither does an atheist or a Big Bang theory. It's all theory. You know, we're talking about evidence and theories. None of it is provable across the board. It's just what is the most convincing evidence? And the Bible doesn't shy away. So it, it, it tells us, like the psalm you just read, go ahead and look at the evidence. Consider it and ask, what does this tell you? about the Creator. I think one of the, the biggest physical evidences that's always astonished me is just the human body in general, right? Um, and and I'm always just baffled how so many uh, physicians and, and people could, you know, could be agnostic or atheist, right? I mean, their entire job is to keep something going and moving and working right that they can't replicate, that they can't create, right? You know, they're they're just addressing keeping this physical body moving and flowing the way it was designed to flow and work. They're not recreating it in a different way. Even when they do prosthetics or or um, artificial organs and things, they're replicating an existing process out there. It's just amazing to me how you could you could do that and take any small little piece of the body and understand how how it all works and not think, oh my goodness, how did this come from 
cells well, they inside often, someone else's body. And they often encourage people to, for knee replacements, put that off as long as you can because they only have a certain life expectancy before they need to be replaced again. So it's good to put that off till later in life because then you won't need a, a second one because they can't make something as good as the original. You know, the physical evidence that persuades me the most, Mount Rushmore. How do you get a mountain with faces on it? Seriously. Okay. I'm just playing. <laughs> Point so, number three. But you kind of led into the third and you, you talked about life. And, and, and I would say when you talk about life, when, you, when did we really figure out how complex life is? Certainly when we opened up the human body, but it was really when we finally got the technology to dig in and find out further. And that was really with the discovery of DNA. When we get into DNA... So just the, the, the nucleus of a one-celled amoeba, how much information does that contain? Just guess. How much information, if you were to put it in terms of books, a one-celled amoeba, what would a you guess? A billion books. I'm just... I'm, okay, I'm now you... <laughs> Bill, no. Billions and billions of books. <laughs> you're ruining the example. It's, whatever no. it is, it's huge. Five, you're supposed to, you're supposed to say, five okay. books. <laughs> Thank you. That's how it's supposed to go. Okay, the nucleus, nucleus. only contains more than 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, these days, nobody knows what that is because we do everything on the internet. But when we were kids, you've seen those big, thick books, 30 volumes of that in a single-celled amoeba nucleus. That's it. So DNA, it's about a 1,000 complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Not a 1,000 books, a 1,000 sets of about 30 books. So... That's in DNA, just in a little bit of DNA. So once we discovered how much information is in DNA, and, and again, it's perfect for life. For anybody to say this just happened, it screams design. And so it's just, it's even more evidence for a creator. When have we ever seen anything that just, you know, was perfect outside, you know, that men have created? We simply haven't, and so we could st we could talk about that a lot more. But just the complexity of life points to a designer. Um, number four, a moral law points to a moral lawgiver. Everybody would agree that there's certain things everybody believes is wrong, and most everybody believes is right. So, I'll give you an example. Can you name a culture that believes it's okay and we should torture children? I, I doubt, because I brought this up even with the high school class, and they've challenged me to say, well, just like there's there's murderers or there's people out there that do things. But I would suggest even those who do evil things know they're evil. Right. And you, know, you, you can take a look at these cultures that have done evil things, but there is moral laws that everybody, I think, has written in their hearts. And those moral laws point to a moral lawgiver. And if there is no such thing as absolute moral law, then how do we know what's right or what's wrong? Well, we certainly hope that everyone around us has morals. I remember hearing a humorous story from a visiting preacher once when I was younger. He talked about his plane flight out to Oregon. He was there for a gospel meeting. And the woman on the plane next to him asked him about the book he was reading. And he said, it's about morality. Let me ask you the question of the book. Is, is there anything that you can say is absolutely wrong? Well, if I look in my heart, I know I'll find the answer. And he says, good. I've looked in my heart, and the answer I've come up with is that I want to steal your purse. And he said the woman kind of clutched her purse a little closer and looked at him suspiciously. 
And she's like, okay, I see your point. But I just think people will will know the right thing in their heart. Oh, I'm going to steal your purse then. You know, he just kept pushing the matter and she just wasn't getting the point. But we sure hope that everyone around us acts with morals. That's a great point. Usually those who argue against it will do so until they're personally impacted by it, whether it's, okay, I'm going to steal something from you or I'm going to do something against you. Well, now all of a sudden I've got a problem and everybody would have that problem. So that's the fourth, the fifth and final, and then we'll end, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we do a whole podcast on evidence for the, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the fact that Jesus lived and existed is a historical fact. You know, if, if that's not something that just people who believe in God believe, but there's evidence for it. But there's also evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whether it be the eyewitness testimony, whether it be the record of the New Testament, which we could spend a whole podcast on itself, but really the resurrection of Jesus Christ is another reason that we believe that God exists. And that, you take any world religion, Joseph Smith, Mohammed, Buddha, you name any religious leader, anybody that started any kind of religious movement, and there was never even a claim of resurrection. That sets Jesus and the Christian faith apart from any anything else. So, in, in concluding, again, beginning of the universe points to a beginner. The fine-tuning is best explained by a fine-tuner. The DNA information points to the author of life. A moral law points to a moral lawgiver. And Jesus Christ... There's evidence that he not only lived, but that he was resurrected. These are five strong arguments that God exists, and we could do a whole podcast on just each one of those. I know we went quickly, but those are five things that you can keep in mind that you can talk about to prove and have confidence that the God of the Bible not only exists, but there's evidence for him. And I'll leave you with this. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, "...for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature," have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We've got evidence all around us, if only we will look at it, consider it, and remember it. Thanks, Paul, for leading us tonight. And it's really great that the high schoolers, they're seeing this too, and they're believing it, and they're able to um, add it to their faith. If you have found this to be beneficial, pray that you will share it with someone. And we thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, Stay tuned for the next one.